being in water or being doing that or that whatever that does for me, I've realized is much more important and impactful than I think I realized. And it's part of my value system. And I wish I would have you know, thought about that more because I think you know, our values potentially change throughout life. But there's a few core values that are probably going to stick around for most of it. That's Noah Bernard, and this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast. Hey guys, I'm your host, Kara Duffy, and on this episode, our 100th episode of the Powerful Ladies Podcast, can you believe it? I am so excited to introduce you to Noah Bernard. He's on my favorite humans list, and he's a great example of how to curate life based upon working hard leaning in on your competitive spirit, and to always be following your own personal passions. I can't wait to hear what you get out of listening to his story. Before we jump into this episode, I want to remind you to come and join the Powerful Ladies Thrive membership. The best way to ensure you live your dream life is to have a community and a coach that will help you get there. And that's exactly what Thrive is for. Join me and fellow Powerful Ladies right now. Go to PowerfulLadies.mn.co. Jump into my twice-weekly group coaching sessions to kickstart everything that matters to you. I can't wait for you to see what you can transform. Well, Noah, welcome to the Powerful Ladies podcast. Hi, Kara. How are you? Thank you for having me. Well, I am really excited you're here. We haven't had a proper catch-up in about 100 years. And you're also one of the most interesting humans I know. So I got lots of things that I want to ask and talk about. Um, but let's tell everybody who you are, where you're up to, and where you are in the world. Well, that is a full-on setup. Now I've got to go through all the past history that we have, and now I've got to really step up, and I'm super interesting. So uh, that's that's a little bit of pressure, but I think I'll do, my, I'll do it, try my hardest. Uh, who am I? I am Noah Bernard. Um, where am I? I'm in London, England. Uh, I've been here. Uh, I'm American by trade, but uh, I've I've been here in uh, London for about uh, 12 years now. Um, who am I? I am. Um, I'm originally from Texas, as I said, an American, um, former uh, professional athlete uh, that turned into somewhat of a marketer. Uh, that turned into somewhat of a little bit of an entrepreneur that's turned into uh, somebody who's trying to navigate my way through uh, some crazy times and, and, and do my best at it as, as best I possibly can uh, is who I am as a person, I would say. Um, but yeah, that's, that's I mean, a shortened, abridged version of who mm-hmm. I am, but that's exactly who I am right now. I figured we could start by talking about the first time I met you, <clears throat> which was the day that I went into the Puma Boston offices for an interview. And you were one of the people that interviewed me, one of the first three. And I'm waiting in this room and I'm nervous. I'm like, I don't know, 25 or 26 at the time. And everyone had kind of gone through being kind of routine. And then you come in with some crazy outfit on like striped pants and this velour printed jacket and a cane and these crazy glasses and probably a hat. And you walk in, you lean back in the chair, you put your feet up on the desk. And your first question is, are you cool enough to work here? (laughs) 
Oh, wow. That does sound like a very, very different version of me from many years ago. Yes. that. Uh, let's see, the cane would have been because I had just broken my back, uh, which has been something I've been dealing with uh, for a long time and still dealing with to this day. I had just broken my back in a bicycle accident. Uh, the striped pants and the velour jacket would have definitely been my steez at that time. It probably mm -hmm. hasn't changed too terribly much uh, in the 15 years it's been since, uh, probably more than 15 years that that's happened. And uh, the hat, uh, to this day, um, I just did a thing a couple of weeks ago and everybody talked about different components and what you would associate or assimilate somebody with. And to a person, as soon as it came to me, everybody said hat. Well, and, and there's like, like all these hats I can see in your background yeah, well, right now, too. Yeah, there's hats <laughs> everywhere. But I was a bit, I was a bit kind of, I was happy with that. But then I also thought, wow, the only thing you can associate me with is an accessory. I feel like I need to do a little bit more in my life to uh, to get more than just hats. But yeah, there's uh, hats are, um, are are still a part of it uh, to this day. And if if if. Uh, if our friend Mark McGarry was listening to this, he would have a, a big chuckle about that because at the same time I interviewed you, I interviewed Mark McGarry and he wore a hat to the interview and we walked out of the interview and our good friend Lewis Joseph said, what do you think of the guy? And I went, guy wore a hat to the interview. You can't wear a hat to the interview. <laughs> and I, I gave him a proper run for wearing a hat. And now this guy's running an incredible business. He's an incredible guy, uh, one of the coolest persons I ever got to work with. So uh, yeah, the hat theme continues on throughout our lives. I love that. Um, <laughs> and to go back to your, your cycling, so you have a lot of athletic accolades. So let's do, tell me a little bit about your athletic history and some of your bigger achievements, which I'll remind you of if you don't remember. Yeah. Um, gosh, I mean, I... I started um, my well, my my career in sports is just really a, it's, it's about my dad essentially. My dad was um, you know a huge sportsman. He he um, went to Texas A and M University. Uh, he in high school he was he tried out for the Dallas Cowboys and the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, I think he got a shot at both of those guys, um, but decided to go in another direction in his life. And and from a very young age, like sport was. It was the thing. I mean, it was the one thing that 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 bonded my dad and I together. My, mm -hmm. you know, I said this to a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago. Um, my uh, my parents or my mother used to joke if if they said flies fucking was a sport, my dad and I would watch it. We just any <laughs> kind of sport. We consumed any and every type of sport, and so I I grew up in that world. And you know, I, as a kid, I played soccer or football, and you know, I tried track and field and I tried all these different things but um I landed on the sport of swimming quite early on um and part of it was because um if you haven't known uh I've got a little bit of ADHD and a little bit of uh some other things going on and I was a pretty hyper kid and the only thing that could chill me out is if they threw me in the water for hours and it just tired me out uh <laughs> so that was where my parents were like okay if we want this kid to be manageable at home, let's just put him in the pool for a while, let him swim for hours. And uh, so that's kind of where it came from. But yeah, I started swimming competitively when I was eight years old. Um, 
you know, had a, had a, I was a, I was a backstroker my, my whole, my whole life, essentially. Um, you know, when I was super young, I was, you know, nationally ranked and, uh, you know, was on a couple of regional teams and a couple of national teams and stuff like that. Um, you know, made it to the, you know, uh, the junior Olympics and senior Olympics and all that kind of stuff that you do. I went on a swimming scholarship, uh, to Ohio state, uh, swam there for a year and then transferred to, uh, the university of Arizona. Um, and when I got to university of Arizona, I, one of the assistant swim coaches at university of Arizona was a triathlete and, uh, I was a good swimmer. And I'd run a bunch at school as well in in high school and stuff like that. I was a I was a, uh, ran a whole lot in high school and was a pretty good runner. And they used to do this kind of swim run in Tucson uh, every year, and I always wound up doing pretty well, finishing in the in the in the higher rankings of it. And this uh, assistant coach said to me, "You know, you're a pretty good swimmer and you're a pretty good runner. If you can just learn how to bike." Uh, we could turn you into a triathlete. And I was like, hi. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I met this guy who ran a bike shop and he started training me for cycling. And then I started kind of doing a career in triathlon and, uh, yeah, spent a few years, um, trying my hardest to make it as a professional triathlete, um, which back then, uh, you know, this is this is the late '80s, early '90s. Um, it was just a, a brand new sport. There wasn't a whole lot of you know people doing it. But if you could, you know, if you could make it as a professional trap, that you could make a bit of Bob doing it. And I tried and tried and tried and tried, and I got a couple of, of deals. I got to deal with Power Bar and a few other kind of cool companies and things like that, but not, you know, not enough to you know, to pay my rent, <laughs> essentially. Um, and I did that for a few years and, um, you know, did an Ironman or did a couple Ironman, did, you well, know. Hold on, um, just did a couple Ironmans. It's like to skip over that, like to go from, oh yeah, I started doing a triathlete and then I did a couple of Ironmans, no big deal. How did you make that transition from triathlete to Ironman? And did you think you were insane when you were preparing for it? Or was it just like after you achieved it, you're like, oh, no big deal. So my entry into the Ironman is, is um, very indicative of me as a person, I would say, in the sense that um, I was doing triathlons. Um, I did my first triathlon with my friend Brian in Phoenix. We did a relay and I did the swim. He did the bike and his brother did the run. And afterwards, I was like, OK, this is cool. I want to do this. Um, I'm really into it. Um, so I did my first one. And I think of my first one, I finished either second or third overall. I finished quite high up in, in the rankings. And I thought, okay, this is it. Like, this is my, this is my new obsession. This is my, because I'm that kind of person. I'm like, this mm -hmm. is the thing I'm going to focus on. And, um, and I was trying to find races to go and do. And I found this race in Montreal. Uh, and it was called a long distance triathlon, which it wasn't an Ironman because it had to have the official mm -hmm. moniker and the patent of Ironman, but it was a long distance one. And me being the person I am, I was like long distance. I'm a good distance swimmer. I'm a good long distance runner. Pff, easy peasy, mate. I'm signing up for that one. Like that was the one I'm going to sign up for. So I signed up for this uh, and then realized that it was 
you know, 2.4 miles of swimming, 118 miles of biking and a marathon at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I went to Montreal. The best part about this one is I went to Montreal and the race was on the swim was in a um, uh, a rowing venue. So mm-hmm. it was just a concrete straight line venue that was a mile down, turn around, come back and then half a mile. And then the bike ride was on a motorsport track that went in the circle. Whoa. And so it was 118 miles going around a circle on the on the on the on the racetrack. Do you get dizzy? My goodness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then the marathon run was on the inside of the racetrack, just going around in circles on that. And that was my first one I ever did. And I was like, I came back from I remember telling Brian, like, bro, I I just I don't think this is for me. Like this is just like that's the I worst was bored. ever. I, yeah, I was so bored. I did well. I I think I finished the top, you know, whatever twenty percent, twenty or something like that. But I remember I did well, and I was like, yeah, but this isn't for me. And Brian was like, yeah, but you know, that's not like a normal Ironman, mate. Like mm-hmm. the real ones are, you know, you go to Kona and you ride and you swim, and it's in beautiful places and stuff like that. And that's where I was like, oh, really? I mean, there's that's not the the format. I thought that was the format. And he was like, no. So yeah, so I did that one the first time. And then I just started doing shorter ones. And then I went, uh, I went to Canada a couple times, did a couple Ironman in Canada, went to Kona once, did one in Kona. Um, yeah, and it just kind of, you know, I fell into it and just started doing that. Um, yeah, that was my life for God, six or seven years, just nonstop, just Ironmans, triathlons, mm-hmm. running races, all that kind of stuff. It just, yeah, I kind of fell into it serendipitously uh, and unintelligently as well. This <laughs> is pretty much the way it works for me. Is the community of the Ironman and the long distance triathlon world as cool as it sounds like? Like, I've never done either of those things, but the community seems rad. Yeah, I mean, I it's, 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 when I started off, it was really small. I mean, it's, it was, it was, it was, we were kind of the, um, land of the misfit toys and sports. You know, we weren't the, yeah. you, you weren't the fastest swimmer, you weren't the fastest biker and you weren't the fastest runner, but you could put all three together and you could make it really. So, so the swimmers kind of looked at us with the weird eye and the runners kind of looked at us with the weird eye and the bicyclists kind of looked yeah. at us with a weird eye. But I think over time, because the sports popularity has grown, and I think because of you've got just people that are, you know, going from the couch to doing Ironman and you, you know, there's such a proliferation of books and, you know, even races that have spun off like Spartan races and Mm -hmm. uh, Tough Mudders and all this other kind of thing. um, This kind of community of endurance people has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. It's become much more inclusive, Mm -hmm. I think. And it's also just become, you know, I think it's a lot more, um, yeah, it's a lot more cool, cooler, as you said, than it was back then. I mean, it, back then it, it was very much kind of, a, you know, an oddball group of people that did it. You know, these were guys that I, I had a training partner who used to um, drain his cottage cheese, which I always thought was the weirdest thing ever. He would put it in a strainer. <laughs> And run water over it because he wanted to get the right amount of like nutrients or less fat or more fat. And it was that kind of world where it was mm-hmm. just random dudes who had just, you know, that went in like me that just, you know, really thought about yeah. it and really like were into it. Where now I feel like it's a little bit more 
it's a little bit more fun. It's a little bit more joyous. It's a little bit more cool than it was back then. But, you know, mm-hmm. some of the some of the coolest people I, you know, and some of the biggest opportunities I have to this day are because of the people that I met back then. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, there's there's people that I still have uh, in my life to this day that um, I met back doing those races. And, you know, I still rely on for, you know, mentorship or, you know, conversations or inspiration and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's, it was it was definitely a big a big part of my life uh, and still is to this day, even though I'm not racing a lot anymore. It's still a big part of it. Yeah, I've seen that you've been getting in the pool again, at least posting about it. And it looks like it's freezing. Yeah, I've um, I've caught on to this um, this guy Vim Hoff. I don't know if oh, you've yeah. heard of him. Oh, yeah. I do. Jesse's obsessed. Mm-hmm. Is he? Yeah. Yeah. Vim I mean, Hoff, David Goggins. Um, there's like this whole crew of like uh, Troy Casey. He's been to one yes. of Troy Casey's man camps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's these guys. I mean, I I. I found them through a friend of a friend of a friend. Um, and it was, again, very much of my life, serendipitous. I found him. And then about a, a kilometer from where we live, there's a pool here called the, the Tooting Beck Lido, which is over 100 years old. It's the only pool uh, that's open year round uh, in south of London. But it's also the only pool that is well, not the only pool, but it's one of the pools that's not heated. So in the summer, you get in and the water temperatures, you know, 23, which is, you know, in mm-hmm. the 70s back home. And then in the winter, it's like I went the day before we got locked down. It was two degrees, which uh, is Celsius? 30, 38, yeah. 30, 38. Yeah. So. So, yeah, I've, I've been getting back into that and. Um, I've, I've, I was, I was ill for a couple of years, uh, recently with, uh, some, some different things. And one of the, uh, physicians and the, the therapist guy said, you know, you got to get back into doing something and swimming's always been there for me. Mm-hmm. It's always been for, for whatever reason, it's always been my home. And he was like, dude, get back in the water and see if, see if that'll work. And, and, to touch wood. Uh, it's been working so far, so I'm back in the water. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. I miss swimming. Yeah. One of my favorite things about um, Herzo was the pool by the office, where I like swimming outdoors versus like in a enclosed um, pool. But I used to love. They had both. We had the indoor pool and we had the outdoor pool. But in the summer, the outdoor pool. It's like I love swimming and like seeing your shadow on the bottom. Like t- that's. You know, I don't know. The sun rising and swimming is it's nice. I miss yeah, that. Yeah, that pool that pools and hurts though with the indoor outdoor was mm-hmm. you know, it's one of those things like I was just actually talking to my partner about this a while ago, talking about like when you're when you're in situations and you don't really appreciate the situations that you're in until yeah. you're out of it and you go, Oh man, you know that pool and hurts though was you know, that was such a cool <laughs> pool or you know or, or how clean that town was or how yeah. like, fun that place was you just i think uh, you forget about those things and, and i was saying to her it's like you know um because we're thinking about moving and we're looking for places and i she said what what are our requirements and i said it's got to be near a pool it's got to be near a train station to get into london and she's like I, this pool thing <laughs> but anyways we're, we were talking about pools and i was like yeah the pool in, in Herzo was uh yeah, it was definitely the one. It was really, really nice there. 
The hardest part was that you only had like an hour with your token if you went to the indoor pool. So like you wanted to get your workout in and then you had to get changed. And I wish they had like some of the um, gyms here have like those fans you can stand in, like out of the shower. So you dry off faster and then you, but it was so hard to like get out of the pool, shower, dry off enough to put your clothes on so that they looked normal and then get out. Like there were so many days where I was like, it's been 30 seconds. Let me out, please. (laughs) You know, the funny thing about the tokens is kills me is like, Again, me as a person, like the obvious. I just remember going into the place with a bag, one of those Ziploc bags filled with change. Yeah. <laughs> and like putting it in the thing, like for a, it was a, it was a Euro 20 or something like that. And just yeah. put it in the thing. And then doing that for six months, the same guy working behind the counter, like almost every day. And then finally the guy coming around and going, you know, you can buy a card and you don't have to do the change every time. And I was like, oh, dude. Yeah. Why didn't you tell me that six months ago? So you watch me every day stand here with my coins going 10, 20, 30, 40. German. Yeah, Yeah, it was very, very German. Many stories about that town. Think about how entertained he was by you for all those weeks. Oh, loved it. Absolutely loved it. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely loved it. And, you know, there's me with like all my old former U.S. national team jerseys and stuff like that on. So he's going... American. Yeah, we're yep. gonna have some fun with this for a little while. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Good Meanwhile, time. there's like kids running by with their cards and you're like, yeah, exactly. Think. How's he getting in? What's uh-huh. going on there? Yeah. It was good time. So you made your transition from you know professional Ironman, long distance triathlete. And then one day you were interviewing me at Puma. So how did you make that jump from athlete to creating products for athletes? Yeah. Um so I, I, I moved to Austin after I left. Well, I moved to Orlando, Florida first uh, after I graduated from university to go work for Walt Disney. Very cool. Which is, which is uh, uh, anybody who knows me knows that I have a huge, uh, huge, huge um, obsession with Mickey Mouse. I've had it uh, in my entire life, actually. Uh, it, it goes back to my childhood, but... Uh, And I always in school, I always wanted to work uh, for Disney Uh, in in middle school and high school. If anybody asked me what I wanted to do, it was go work for Disney. And at a younger age, it was to go be a, uh, you know, an an illustrator or work in the Imaginarium or something like that. But later in life. So when I one year after I finished swimming uh, university, I had a year, a summer and I went and worked for Walt Disney in the college program. Which is an amazing, an amazing program. I, I I've got a nephew, and I keep pressuring him to like sign up for it. I'm like, bro, this this is, it's such a cool thing. It is, uh, you know, you live on Disney property. It's college kids from all over the world. Uh, you take courses. You work in different places. You know, from a learning experience and just from a fun aspect, it's just mm-hmm. a brilliant thing. But anyways, I I did that for. A summer, and then after when I was there, I met a couple of people who worked in like the marketing departments and different things like that, and said, you know, when I graduate, I'm coming back. And they were like, "We, you come back, we'll sort you out with the gig. You know, come back, no problem." So I moved, I moved to Disney, uh, to Orlando for uh, a year, uh, working in the um, uh, Disney. Um, 
timeshare condominium business, which was a whole nother story I could tell for hours <laughs> about. Uh, lots of stories there. Um, yeah. And then um, still trying to do some cycling stuff, uh, still trying to do some run- triathlon, cycling, running, swimming stuff. Um, and then didn't really work out with Disney because uh, I couldn't really find like my 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 thing at Disney. So I moved back to Texas. Um, and when I moved back to Texas, I moved to Austin because at the time and still to this day, Austin was a mecca for running and for cycling and swimming and triathletes and things like that. So I moved to Austin. And when I got to Austin, I went back to school uh, to get my master's in exercise physiology um, and was going to school, was training pretty much full time, was still trying to make the the professional gig work. And, and to be honest, dead, dead honest with you, it wasn't. I was I was doing well in races, but not well enough to for somebody to sign me on a contract um, and went into a running shoe store in Austin, Texas, a place called Runtex, a uh, guy by the name of Paul Carosa, who is still one of my best mates and still my, you know, my main mentor to this day, mm-hmm. uh, walked into the store and was in there to buy a uh, hydration system because mm-hmm. I was going to go do an Ironman. And I was there at the wall trying on different hydration systems of being who I am, laying them down. And, you know, this one weighs this much and that one's this and that one's that and da 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 and all the pros and cons. Totally nerding uh, out about hydration totally systems. Nerd, like, totally <laughs> nerding out, like way too much information. And uh, a woman that was stood beside me asked me, uh, thinking I worked there, I think said, you know, you know, which is the best hydration system? Mm-hmm. And I went full nerd on her, like <laughs> went in. I was like, well, you know, if you're going to run this much, you know, da, 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 da. And the sales associate was stood there, a guy who worked there stood there and was listening to him. At the end of it, she goes, you know, okay, I'll buy that one. Turned around and walked away. And then I picked mine up and was walking to the counter. And the sales guy uh, said, hey, man, like, are you involved in sports? Are you? And I'm like, yeah, I'm doing exercise physiology at UT and I'm trying to be a pro triathlete. And he was like, how are you making money? And I was like, uh, right now, not very well, not very well at all. And he was like, um, you know, we, we need somebody here. I'll speak to the owner. I think you'd be great. Uh, you know, I really like, he re- I'm sure he'll really like you. You know, he probably can get a job here. Come back a couple of days later, walked in, met Paul and his wife, Sheila, uh, I don't even think there was an interview. I think it was more like, hey, mate, you know, mm-hmm. chat with us for a little bit. Let's talk about what you do and who you are, mm-hmm. yada, yada, yada. And then a week later, I was working the sales floor and they, they were, you know, at the time, they were kind of a, a smallish operation. But, you know, in the next like two to three years, they were one of the pr- premier running shoe stores in the country. And then all the shoe companies used to come visit them because Paul, the owner is this, uh, I don't even know how to describe him. Like he's amazing with feet and shoes. He's an incredible coach. He's still Mm -hmm. coaching kids to this day. And all the shoe companies would come in and they would sit with Paul and they would talk to them about things. And Paul and I became close friends and he'd just invite me in to different things. And I'd sit down with them and meet all the different people. And, Mm -hmm. you know, guys we worked with at, 
you know, at Puma I knew and people I've worked with later on at Adidas I met and people I worked with Nike later on I met. Um, and yeah, I just started doing that. And then Paul got the Runner's World Shoe Review. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he started doing all the shoe companies were sending the shoes to him. And he started doing all the shoe reviews for him. And I started helping him out with that. And then we started traveling to Boston Marathon, New York Marathon, Honolulu Marathon, you know, and then when you do that, all the shoe companies are, you know, they're, they're being nice to you because they, you know, they think you're going to give them a good review and stuff like that. And I was in, in, a, in um, a bar in New York City uh, when Nike used to sponsor the New York City Marathon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the big guys at Nike were there and some of their athletes were there. I think it was a night after one of the after the marathon when everybody was having a good time. And one of the top guys at Nike in the running division turned to me and said, hey, if uh, what are you going to do once this uh, triathlon thing ends? And I went, I <laughs> shit, I have no idea. <laughs> I have zero idea, man. So does that mean that you worked with Tom Archie? I worked with Tom Archie and I worked with Tim Slingsby. Yeah. And I worked with Kirk Richardson and Fritz Taylor and... Because Tom Dude's was up. my last boss at uh, DC, and now like, oh, really? we're, yeah, we're buddies. When I go yeah, to Portland, I we always grab a coffee or a lunch or something. But is it was didn't he go to Saucony for a little while or something like? Yeah, that? after after he was at Quicksilver World Board Riders, he went over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he's a fascinating yeah. guy with tons of stories too. Yeah, I mean, all those guys from the East Coast um, that you know, because that whole. I think what people don't realize about the shoe industry is, yes, you know, a lot of it's in Portland now, but for a long, long time, Boston, mm-hmm. you know, there was a factory and a Nike factory in Boston and Reebok was there and Saucony was there and Spot Built was there. I mean, yep. there were so many New Balance, everybody was there. So all those kind of East Coast guys like Archie and um, mm-hmm. I can't, guys oh. named... Uh, all those dudes that were up there, they kind of like built the industry. Like they, yeah. they were there and then, you know, Nike and Adi did their thing in Portland, but that was, yeah. so all those guys like And the only Strasser, reason Adi went to Portland was because of Nike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But all those guys there, like, I, I mean, if you've ever read the, uh, everybody's onto the book, um, Shoe Dog, and I keep telling them it's a good book, but if mm-hmm. you want to read the real book, read Swoosh, it's impossible to find. But that book talks about how like Strasser and Phil Knight and Hollister and all those guys, like how they built those businesses mm-hmm. across the board. And it tells like the 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 real the real poop about the industry from like that yeah. book is amazing. And I keep telling all my shoe friends that are guys are trying to get into it. I'm like, read this book because that was East Coast. Mm-hmm. Those guys started all. But yeah, like all I like dudes Sneaker Wars, too. Yeah, Sneaker Wars is an amazing one as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Swoosh is the one, if you could find it, it's really hard to find because I don't think they print it anymore because I think there was a bit of a legal thing about it. <laughs> Might have been but, too honest. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, I think there was, a, I think it's it's a tough one to find, but it's an amazing book. But yeah, yeah, so I was, I was, yeah, I was doing that. And then, um, yeah, one of the guys at Nike said, you know, what about coming and working for us? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like, you know, come work for us. It was like, hey, we, you know, if something comes up, we'll put your name forward for it and whatever. And I, you know, I did the whole the Nike interview thing, which is to this day probably one of the craziest interview processes. Like you, 
you had a phone interview <clears throat> and then I flew to Portland and I had a round of like interviews with a couple of different people in the department, mm -hmm. flew home. Then they flew me back again and I had to give a presentation and then I came back again and I had to give a presentation on something that I made. I mean, it was, it was mad. That's how my Puma uh, one was. Yeah. Back in the day, like I keep hearing about these guys getting these jobs and I'm like, not sounding like the old man that talks about, you know, walking two miles up the uphill in the snow. But yeah. back in the day, those those interviews were were a bitch, man. Like mm -hmm. they they really grilled you. Yeah. Like you had to present and you had to do multiple presentations. You had to do like five of them in a the day. You had to present to one guy and then the next guy and then the next guy. They yeah. weren't easy, man. They were hard on yeah. you. I and I remember, so the, the presentation I did for Puma was for like what I would do with the kids department. And I remember Adrian being like, that's cute. Great presentation. I'm not sure if you'll achieve any of that here, but we'd love to have you. And so I made it my mission to check off as much as possible in that presentation just to prove him wrong. Come on, Kay Duff. The Carrie Duffy, <laughs> the Carrie Duffy kids presentations uh, will, will go down in history as some of the greatest presentations of all time. I remember prior to you getting there, mm -hmm. when the kids' presentation came up, I, I don't remember, I'm not going to slate anybody, but before you got there, when the kids' presentation came up, none of us were like, yeah, whatever, kids' presentation, let's hit the pub, it's over. That's what everybody when said, you, even, when, the, even the sales reps. <laughs> when you when you got there and you started giving presentation, it was like, dude, what, what time is it? Shit, uh, kids' presentation's on. We got to go make the kids' presentation because there's going to be some Cinderella story or there's going to be some other story or something like that. Those presentations were. Well, I had a lot of pressure because Thomas Yosnick was doing some really hilarious presentations. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, so everyone told me they had to be funny. I'm like, I am the least funny person I've ever met. What are you talking about? So it was so stressful to have to build a presentation that wasn't my style at first, but then it kind of like slowly got built in because I didn't know the inside jokes or things to include at first. So I'm like literally making it with other people like, all right, I'll present. And to go from presenting to like a table of people to suddenly there's like, I don't know, three, 500 people in a room looking at you, but not looking at you because they're on their phones because English is their second language and they don't care. Yeah. It was a crazy experience, but. In those, in those, in that, in that, what? warehouse slash showroom slash auditorium used to present in yeah yeah in the it, middle of nowhere in Herzegonarok middle of nowhere nowhere, nowhere. yeah uh, the first time I ever went on stage uh Tammy had just presented something probably the marketing for kids and she we had done a shot in the back of like tequila just coming off I was nervous she said something where I laughed so hard walking upstairs to go onto the stage that I was like I'll be fine like she she saved that presentation for me because I just relaxed in a second. T Rock, the good old Tammy, Tammy, right? Yeah, those were the days, man. Yeah, those were the days. So, so to summarize for people, you, you were at Nike, then you're at Puma, then you you're at Puma Boston, where we started working together, and then you moved to Germany, where I was at the time, but to work for Adi. And then yeah. from Adi, you went on to work. Uh, you moved to London, and you've been mm -hmm. in London ever since. Yeah, so I went from Nike. I went from Nike. I worked for those guys for a while. Then I left Nike and I went to go work for Cliff Bar. And when Cliff Bar was starting off their Luna Bar yeah. stuff, which is our women-specific bar, and started helping them do like the Luna Chick teams and stuff like that in the South. And then um, 
did that for a bit and I started my own company uh, doing kind of marketing and sales for a lot of brands like Dolphin Swim and Kestrel Bikes and all these different kind of like sportswear brands. And I picked up Pearl Izumi. And then I I built this business and then I killed the business <laughs> uh, where I, I built the business um, selling to accounts in Texas, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. And then, um, you know, some of the companies would be like, hey, you got Texas, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. Can you pick up New Mexico? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll take New Mexico. And then they go, can you pick up Colorado? Can you pick up Utah? Can you pick up Wyoming? And so I was mm-hmm. doing all this area uh and more accounts but the business wasn't growing exponentially in relation to the geographics and Mm -hmm. the costs and so i kept taking things on and finally woke up one day and went wow i'm you know i'm really upside down in this thing and then Mm -hmm. um one of my one of my brands was pearl azumi and pearl azumi tom adams was an old nike guy and he was working at Pearl Izumi and basically said, hey, we're looking for somebody who has a sports background, somebody who has some design background, because I did, and then somebody who has a little bit of biomechanics because of what I did at UT uh, to come in and start our footwear division because we want to start doing cycling shoes and running shoes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And they'd already started doing cycling shoes um, with some really, like, really cool people that I'm still friends with today. They said, can you come in and do the running stuff for us? And so I started doing the running stuff and went from no shoes to actually making shoes to working designs to actually producing them Mm -hmm. to actually going, selling them in. So it wasn't just like product line management. It was like actually going to the accounts and sitting across from, you know, the head of Foot Locker and going, please buy these shoes, you know, know, Mm -hmm. trying to get orders done. So we did, I did that. And then. I took a year off, a couple of years off and drove across the U.S. for a little while. And then, um, yeah, and then Puma, I mean, mm-hmm. started off in Boston um, in the running division with, the, you know, f- uh, some of our old mates. Mm-hmm. Did that for a few years and then uh, left to go work for Adidas and moved to Germany in our old home of Hertha Kanarok. You, yeah. you got there before me. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> Worked for those guys for three years, probably some of the best years ever. Just amazing place and great brand and stuff like that. Then I moved to London uh, 12 years ago. Uh, At first, I started off working for Wolverine, Mm -hmm. which is Saucony, Ked, Sperry. My old life Um, of Stride Right. Stride Right, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Started off with them doing Hush Puppies, was called... Was told was was brought in uh, with the notion of re bringing hush puppies back to life. You know, an old classic mm-hmm. American comfort brand, and uh, and did that with them, and then took on Keds and took on Sperry and took on Pro Keds for those guys, and then um, did that for a few years, and then um, yeah, I got I got um, met a guy from Samsung at a thing. Um, again, serendipitous and just kind of having chats with somebody and stuck up, struck up a conversation with him, chat with him about some stuff. And he was like, uh, you ever thought of getting into tech? And I was like, oh, bro, like I <laughs> seriously, like 
I, I don't even, I barely know how to turn on the TV. Like, I'm not your guy for that. Like, uh, this would not be me. And he was like, no, you know, we need somebody who doesn't have that background. We need somebody who is completely, you know, f- that will look at it from a, real a different perspective, you know, mm-hmm. from a customer's perspective, and we'll look at it a completely different way and, you know, think about it. And it was like a long kind of back and forth where it would be like, yeah, maybe. And then I go, nah, and I, you know, like I'm a, I'm a sports guy. I'm a sneaker mm-hmm. guy. Like, and then finally I met um, the guy who was their CMO, who was just a brilliant man, just an awesome, awesome guy. Uh, and then I met the the CMO woman in, in Samsung, Korea, mm-hmm. met both of them. And we're like, okay, like these people are legit these these mm-hmm. people are for real and moved over to them and worked for them for three years and yeah learned had <laughs> learned an enormous amount and and we, we used to think that our lives were fast-paced in sports and shoes like it's nothing like technology it's just it's next level man it's absolutely next level yeah you're we were already getting bored with our own products when they'd come to market because we were already on to the next thing and I think about how fast technology is going, like, what, you, what do you have, like two weeks from when the idea comes out to when you want to sell it before you're over it and the customer's over it? Like, it's, it gives it's me anxiety insane. to think about that speed. <laughs> but you're even like, even in, even in our world, shoes and stuff like that, like, you know, you're, you're pitching a collection for, you know, 12 months, 16 months in advance and you don't see it come out, but you're still pitching that because there's a sell in and there's a this mm-hmm. and there's a that and a this and that. We're in technology like a month before the phone's supposed to be, you know, a guy's supposed to stand on stage in, you know, the, the Brooklyn Nets arena to talk about the phone. They're still deciding whether or not it's going to have an AMOLED screen or how big it's going to be or what the processor is going to be like. They're they're mm-hmm. still figuring that kind of stuff out. And f- from a marketer or from a creative perspective, you're at the ready going, <laughs> okay, it could be this big or it could be that big, or it could, mm-hmm. the colors could be these colors or it could be those colors, or it could be, you know, this much processor or that much processor. And it's just, they're just moving at such a pace. And mm-hmm. it's, it's quite, I mean, it's really cool, but it is, it's massively stressful for a lot of different people because mm-hmm. everyone just kind of like, you know, they're making, you're making multi-million dollar decisions based on what you think it's going to be. And then it might be something different. And then there's the whole, the other thing, which was kind of similar to what we did before, but I think quite different is just the secrecy factor. Like yeah. if a phone gets leaked before it gets launched, like it's Forget a major it. issue because mm-hmm. all the Chinese competitors can knock it off in a month or a week or two weeks. Mm-hmm. So you can't, you can't say anything. You can't, talk about anything until that moment so it's all you know cloak and dagger until the weeks before the whole thing happens and then you've got to launch it so there was just it was quite a learning curve I mean, it was it was it was fun and it was it was mad but it was definitely very different from where i was before where we've been before actually mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. different but yeah that's 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 me that's where i've been that's what i've been doing man <laughs> It's so, you know, you've been in London for 12 years now, which is I've been in California for 11 now. Um, How has it been being in London during a pandemic when London is not where you're from? Um, 
I think the thing about this whole pandemic thing for me is um, it's really interesting because I have I have I have friends that are, you know, in the entertainment industry or own restaurants Mm -hmm. or things like that, where you see the actual impact that the lockdown has had, like face to face, you see like how devastating that is for Mm -hmm. people's their financial livelihood, but also just their well-being and, you know, the interactions that they have with with people. For me, because I'm used to kind of doing work on my own or because I've, you know, either, you know, worked in in kind of autonomous ways, kind of entrepreneurial right. ways. Before. Or on an airplane ha- and a hotel or room on, and yeah, it, <laughs> backstage. Or, or, you know, you know, it, the 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 freedoms of our kind of our lives and the and the industries that we've worked with, you know, we've never been kind of, you know, punch a clock at eight a.m. Mm-hmm. and leave at six o'clock. You know, we're you know we're traditionally always on. You mm-hmm. know, we're we're working all yeah. the time. You know, even you know in the shoe industry, you're walking down the street and you're you know you're you checking people's sneakers out. Like you yeah. can't not look at people's sneakers. Or in the phone industry. I go into a pub and I look at how many people are pulling out fo- iPhones versus Samsung versus Huawei. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. you're always on that. And I think so for me in that instance, it's been it hasn't been that different for me because mm-hmm. I'm used to working in that way yeah. and used to working with people living in Herzl and working with people in Portland or working with people. So this whole kind of Zoom thing is not that different for me as well. Yeah. Same. So mm-hmm. it hasn't really, from a from a working perspective, I don't think it's really impacted me that much. Now, from a personal perspective, not being able to get home has mm-hmm. been devastating. Like, yeah. you know, my, my you know my family's still in Texas, and uh, you know I haven't seen them coming up a year, almost a year and a half now. That part of it has been really, really challenging, and yeah. also kind of the different perspectives on, you know, the perception of a lockdown in London versus the perception of a lockdown in, let's say, Spring, Texas, mm-hmm. very different. <clears throat> so that's been a bit of a challenge. But, uh, you know, the, I I think the the main thing about it is it's just, I think it's it's kind of what I see a lot of what's happening in London is I think it's a, it's forcing London to slow down a bit, which... Some people think is a bad thing, but I actually think it might wind up being yeah. a bit of a good thing um, for the world. But it, it really, it hasn't been that. It, I'm, I'm remiss in saying that it hasn't been that bad for me because I know it's devastated many people's lives. But for me personally, I can't say that it's been a horrible experience for me. Yeah, no, same. I mean, the biggest thing I realized is how antisocial I had been and didn't realize it. Because like lockdown happened, I was like, whatever, my day, I still, I work from home, I live at home, like just keep going. Um, So I have, being like a 50-50 introvert extrovert, it took me a long time before I was like, okay, I'm done. Like, get me out of here. Plus I'm on Zoom calls all the time. Like I still had interaction. Um, Yeah. I think that's an interesting interesting thing because I think that's where I've seen it with the different types of friends that I have. So having friends that are in entertainment you know, dancers, actors, people like that. Um, the the um, having the personal 
interaction taken away from them has been devastating for mm-hmm. these guys. Mm-hmm. It's not just the it's not just the career that's been impacting, but that kind of like feedback that they traditionally get between yep. the t- between you know audience member and performer or this and that. Like mm-hmm. I've seen that quite you know yep. very much in my face a lot because of the friends that I have. Mm-hmm. Then there's the you know the 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 kind of the the engineers and the scientist guys that I know that are just like, what life's changed, you know, like <laughs> this is, you know, you know, like yes. what's, it's, what do you mean? You know, nothing's mm-hmm. like, this is, if I put my head down, I do this, I do that, I do this mm-hmm. and that's my thing. And then there's kind of like what you're saying, the people in the middle that like, I get up some days and I kind of go, okay, this is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with it. Head down. And then you raise your head up and you go, Oh wait, you know, like, yeah, I, I kind of want to go do some of these things, these human interaction things, and they're just not there. Yeah, the hardest <laughs> thing for me has been that my my dad retired, and they were in Louisville, Kentucky, for a couple of years for his last job. They sold their house. They're uh, at the time just moved in with my brother and sister, who happened to be in Burbank, and so they're an hour away from me. We haven't lived in the same state or the same country for like over oh my gosh, like so many years now. And it must be 20. I keep saying 10, but I think it's actually 20 because I have to remember to add on uh, Germany stuff. But I was so excited to like think that they'd be out here. We can like go for lunch or go on a hike together or just do things. And I can't, I can't see them. So it's like, it's almost no different if how you are with your family where it's like, you know, mine are down the street and I, I can't see them. They have some you know, underlying condition. So it's risky. And then for Christmas Eve, Jesse and I got COVID, which was awesome. So like, we're, we're just kind of coming out of that now, but it's like, um, I'm, I agree with you in that. I'm excited about how this experience has caused us to relook at everything and really decide what we need or don't need to function as businesses and, and companies and ourselves. And like having it just like chill out a little bit, like, I think about all the people who commute in LA and London, like to be on the train for two hours a day each way. Think about how those lives have changed because they didn't have to do that. But I'm, I've been doing some work with some different companies, some big corporations and some small stuff. And the bigger corporations are the ones that are the most like, oh, wait a second. You mean we can work this way? And, you know, yeah. The smaller places I've worked with are, you know, they're kind of like going, yeah, of course you can work this way because that's, you know, mm-hmm. that's they they almost have to work that way because of, you know, investment and capital and stuff like that, where these big mm-hmm. corporations haven't been forced to think about that. And I think that's to me, that's been really interesting is listening to some of these corporations, people being quite shocked at the fact that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that that they can work in this manner and that the wheels of commerce haven't slowed down for them now for the. Mm-hmm smaller people and you know the restaurants i understand it's really impacted them but these bigger corporations realizing that you know this mythological 40-hour work week hasn't existed for most people for 25 30 years like it it hasn't existed it's 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 ridiculous and Mm -hmm. you know you've got companies like patagonia and cliff bar and stuff like that that have kind of these you know, kind of open-ended ways of working, get your work done. But if you want to go surf, you want to go do this, mm-hmm. you know, the <clears throat> the joy of the of the the employee being greater than kind of this mandated kind of mythological yeah. thing, they're realizing this and they're kind of seeing like, okay, this is a 
this is a possibility. What mm-hmm. I'm most curious about is when, you know, hopefully everything starts to mellow out, are these companies going to maintain that mentality or are mm-hmm. they going to fall back on, you know, bad, not bad habits, previous habits of, okay, habits. Mm-hmm. you've got to do this, you've got to do that. I, I work with a, a couple of young guys uh, on, a, on a project right now. And one of the guys the other day was telling me about um, a contract that he had uh, with one company where if he decided he didn't want to work with it anymore, he just didn't show up. That was it. Like, you know, he, 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 you know, call in person and say, Hey, listen, it's not working for me. I'm out. There wasn't a, you know, a two week notice period or a month Mm -hmm. notice period. It was just like, I'm stopping working. So you should stop paying me. And the guy was, (laughs) that was it. And I, and I, he, he was telling me about this and my old kind of, you know, old man way of thinking thing went, well, that sounds a bit. And then I started thinking about it and I was like, but I, that kind of makes sense. Like if you're just done, you're, 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 you're done, you know, and I get that there's a gap between people coming in and people coming out, but he he was just like, yeah, that's just kind of the mm-hmm. way a lot of the contracts I have right now that I'm working on are, you know, it's just zero hour. That's right. it. I'm done. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And then in listening to the way he's, these guys are talking about all these different things. I'm just going, I'm hoping that some of this changes are making people think about the way that they approach this and the way that we work and the mm-hmm. way that we think that work is or what its value is or all these other kinds of things. So, it, I mean, I, that's been the most, I know, fascinating thing to me or interesting yeah. thing to me about it, as well as social media, because I'm, I, have, I haven't quite formalized it yet in my head, but we had this kind of like social media thing where we were living apart from each other through social media. Mm-hmm. And then when we were forced to live apart from each other, we were upset that we now are living apart from each other. Yeah. And I, I kind of want to go, but that's, there's something about social media in there that's got to work out. Like it's mm-hmm. hopefully it's going to make people want to be face to face more. Yeah. Like I, some of the guys I work with, one of my biggest frustrations with them is this email thing where like there's 50 emails that comes off of one question. I keep turning the guys and going, dude, just pick up the phone and call them. Right. Just call, call first them. and then Slack second. Do not write and me then, an email. And the faces <laughs> on some of these dudes are like, what do you mean call? And I'm like, mate, just call them. It, yeah. like, can I WhatsApp them? I'm like, no, no, no. Because you're going to, and then they, and I'm in the group and then mm-hmm. I'm going to get 10 messages about, hey, yeah. thanks for sending me. Thank, hey, thank you. No, thank you. Yeah, thank you. No, thank you. Just call and go, hey, thanks, man. We've, we're, we've done this X, Y, and Z. Right. <coughs> but anyways. I have just, a, whole, uh, a, a whole thing for my own companies, but also within the group coaching I do about how do we just like never use email? And they're oh, like, man. what? I'm like, I no, I like email takes up time. I have to either delete it or answer it. 90% of my emails, I just delete because no one needs an answer. Like I'm, I'm over CYA stuff unless it's super critical. But yeah. like, no, it's yeah, my, like, my favorite one is the thanks email reply. Mm. <laughs> that's what I like reply done. all. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, it's not like an old man right now. But anyways. Yeah, no, I used, I had a sign on my last office that said, don't be an asshole. 
<laughs> and it was very similar of like, why are you coming to ask me? Because you don't want to go like Google it yourself or you don't want to go find it in the directory or ask your neighbor. Like, I do not need to answer your question. Yeah, yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah, no, I'm hoping it does something for us. I don't know what it'll do, but I hope it does something. Well, I think there's so many. We already had the transition, right, of a lot of people going like um, independent or contractor or freelance kind of happening. So there was already that momentum. But to me, it's like I don't understand why more conservatives in the U.S. aren't for a public health care system, because it actually allows more people to be independent and not do work they don't want to do. Like the biggest reason people are nervous to be an entrepreneur in the U.S. is like, how do I make sure I have health insurance? But also, how am I going to pay for my student loan? It, yes. Yes. And so even just like, at least in California, like I can buy um, relatively affordable health insurance. It's still more expensive than it probably should be. Um, but it's like, why, why are we making that why someone stays trapped in a job they don't like? That's not good yeah. for anybody. Yeah, uh, those 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 kind of old traditions are. I mean, I think that um, speaking to a friend of mine the other day, he's got two young girls. Uh, she was talking about a few different things that are happening in the world, and I keep saying this. I, I keep saying to people of, that have children and people that are, are of a certain ages. I just think those guys are going to save us all because they're going to mm-hmm. bring a different perspective than my generation, our generation has. And they mm-hmm. are, they're looking at things and they're, you know, I, I think that question of why mm-hmm. has been lost for a long time. Like just, it's not, I'm saying it's good or it's bad. I just want to understand why, why? it's this way. Why? Yes. Just please explain to me the why. And if we can uncork the why and the why becomes a reason to believe, then mm-hmm. let's go that pathway. But if you don't ask the why first, mm-hmm. and I think there's, you know, people call them a snowflake or call them whatever you want to call them, but <laughs> these guys that are asking the question of why yeah. are the ones that are really kind of pushing the boundaries and hopefully are going to be the ones that kind of, again, I think save us on multiple levels, environmentally, politically, you know, socially, all these other kinds yeah. of things to continue to ask that question why. And, and a lot of those you know, a lot of those questions are stemming from, I think, what is hopefully coming out of this uh, fourth turning that we're in right now, where people are, you know, uh, things are degrading so poorly yeah. that the the winter must, the spring must follow somehow. And, and, and the way the spring follows is people kind of asking that question of why yeah. um, quite consistently. I agree. It's also why I'm pro like skipping. I don't care if 18 year olds vote, but I think we should just probably let only people between ages five and eight vote because they probably would do a better job at choosing for all of us. (laughs) Right. They're going to ask why. And then they're going to be like, I don't know. Is this fun? Is this good for people? (laughs) Is this fun? This isn't fun would probably be a lot of what people are saying. Right. Right. Um. Well, so I, I'm a big believer in asking why a lot, like the clarity workshop I do is asking people why about everything. Like, why do you live in that apartment? Why do you have these things? Like almost having an existential why (laughs) to kind of break through some things. Mm -hmm. How much do you ask yourself why in your life and how has it kind of led to the different journeys that you've had so far? Yeah. I mean, for me, I'm a bit, um, uh, reminiscent about why because i think i i especially right now 
I wish I would have asked why a lot more, mm -hmm. um, uh, more often, not of others so much, but of myself. Yep. Um, uh, probably, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago, I wished I would have, I wish I would have made that question come to life a lot more than it, than it has. And I think over, I don't know, I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know why, but I think over the past like five or six years, that question of why has become, you know, super, super important to me. Um, they, I don't know if you've, there's a book called The Hundred Year Life. I don't know if you've read it yet. No, but if it you sounds have, awesome. It's, a, it's an incredible book, but I mean, uh, uh, for anyone listening and for you, I won't ruin it. But essentially the, <clears throat> the premise is, is, you know, we're getting older and our mm -hmm. life expectancy is growing and growing and growing. And when our life expectancy was something in the fifth, you know, fifty year to sixty year range, um, things were quite linear. You know, mm -hmm. you went from manager to this to that to this to that. You got this car, then you got the bigger car, and da 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 da. da. As as our life expectancy grows, um, things have less of an opportunity to be to be linear. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, you you and and the question of why why would I have to go from being a marketing director. Yeah. Uh, at X company to being a, a VP to being a CMO. Why can't I be a marketing director at X company and then find my passion in, I don't know, sustainability mm -hmm. and go become a, a potentially a, a lower level than I was before and find that and build that. And then I become more multiplicitous. You know, I become more intelligent mm -hmm. I become a, a more rounded person. I, you bigger know, I can interact better, mm -hmm. bigger contributor, you know, all these different kinds of things. And my old CM, CMO at Samsung, before he left, he, he gave a few of us that book mm -hmm. as a recommendation because he was the CMO of Samsung and didn't tell us he, he did. He told us he was leaving, but didn't tell us where he was going. And of course, everybody in the building's going, Okay, you know, he's CMO of Samsung, he's going to become CMO of Coca-Cola now or he's going right. to become CMO of, you know, what have you and he became the general manager of a third-tier football club on the on awesome. the east east coast of of the UK because it was near his hometown and because he loves football and mm -hmm. you know, and everybody not everybody, a lot of people were like quite shocked by that and I was yeah. like Fuck yeah, dude. Yeah, like, that's, me too. I'm like, that sounds yeah. awesome. <laughs> I'm like, that is awesome. And yes, he's probably built up enough of a substantial financial backing to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. But then there's other people I know that, you know, um, are doing the same things. And I think that for me is this question of why, if mm -hmm. why does the path have to be linear? Yeah. And why, why, why do, um, things have to be done a certain way? Like, you know, even like I've been, ill for a few years now and you know meeting some new and different people that think in medicine in a different way and and they're not alternative medicine they're not holistic medicine they just have different mindsets and mm -hmm. you know people like rich roll or you know the mcgonagall or any of these different people have kind of these different mindsets of just kind of challenging yeah. things of like why is it that way and i've really over the past five years, I found myself going deeper into that why. And sometimes mm -hmm. I go into the deep why and I come out and I go, okay, that didn't answer the why. So I'm going to keep exploring for a different thing. And then sometimes I come out of the deep why and I go, 
okay, that's why. And that gives me a new perspective. I may not mm-hmm. buy into that new perspective, but I feel like I have a better, a better understanding of, of, of something. And I think that's mm-hmm. that, that question of why has become so much greater for me. And I, and I also think in going back to, you know, the previous thing, I wish I would have asked myself questions about why things are a certain way or ultimately why I reacted to things in a certain way or why I did mm-hmm. things in a certain way, because mm-hmm. I think I, that's where um, I probably could have had more understanding of decisions made or choices or things like that. And that's become a much bigger, much, much bigger component of my thinking recently. Well, and it's, it's to me that asking why is always allowing us to come back to like what we actually care about, like what matters to us and how to, how to just live a more intentional and curated life. That's, for us, custom design versus whatever we're supposed to do. Like I talk a lot in the Powerful Ladies uh, group about just because you should, like you could or you should. So are you doing, are you living a life of shoulds or are you living a life of coulds? Like that guy was like, I could go be a general manager at my hometown for football, which I never thought might have happened. Or everyone's like saying I should go become president somewhere else now because I've been this. Like what's what sounds more fun and what sounds more, what's exciting versus and what, expected. And what's also, um, I think the why question for me, at least, and this is just, a, is, is also the value systems. Like what, mm-hmm. what are the things that you value the most? And I, again, like thinking retrospectively, like I wish I would have kicked around my values a little bit more when I was in different opportunities or different mm-hmm. places. Like I wish I would have kicked around like, you know, <clears throat> like this, and it, going back to the start of this, like the, the, wa- the swimming thing, like yep. uh, that being in water or being doing that or that, whatever that does for me, I've realized is much more important and impactful than I think I realized. Mm-hmm. And, and it's part of my value system. And I wish I would have, um, you know, thought about that more. Cause I think, um, <clears throat> you know, our values potentially change throughout life, but there's, a few core values that are probably going to stick around for most of it yep. and, not, and not, not really sitting down with myself and not, you know, not, you know, uh, hiking up to the top of a mountain and spending a month or a year up there thinking about it, but just spending some time thinking about mm-hmm. what are those values I think potentially could have shaped decisions and pathways. Not that I've mm-hmm. had some bad pathways in my life or career. I'm quite fortunate in, um, even more so lucky than I would say fortunate. <laughs> uh, anybody who knows me well knows that. Um, it, you know, it's it's it's. I wish I would spend a little bit more time kicking around those values. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you, I think once you have those kind of values kicked around, then when you start to question the why, it gives you something to go back to on yep. the whys. Where uh, maybe for me, I haven't really kind of had the whys and the values. Organized and clear. Yeah, yeah. Orga- yeah organized mm-hmm. and clear. And, you know, it's, um, you know, you know, le- like leaving Adidas. You know, why did I leave Adidas? You know, it was it was a brilliant job. It was an incredible yeah. place to work. Uh, I was surrounded by insane creativity, sport, athletes, you know. <clears throat> Herzo is a thing, but Herzo is a thing, you know. Yeah. Like, you know what Herzo is. Like, you get it's it. It's like the crazy uncle in the corner, Herzo. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, you know, like question those things, I think would have been, uh, you know, that I keep that's that's been a big thing. And I think 
this COVID thing has um, intensifies, intensified mm-hmm. or exacerbated that why questioning for not just for me, but I think for a lot of different people, like specifically here in London, like mm-hmm. the amount of people that are getting out of London right now right. that can, that are moving out of London, like moving from the city um, is pretty spectacular. Like mm-hmm. I, I've got friends that, you know, have lived in London for 18, 20, 25 years that I'm, you know, on calls or on chats with going, yeah, we're actually thinking of moving out of London. And I'm like, wow, like, that's insane. Like, you yeah. you work in the theater district. Why would you, you know, you, mm-hmm. the West End is right there for you. And they're like, I just, what is it providing? You know, what's mm-hmm. all these kinds of things? So I, I think it's a big, big thing that's happening for a lot of people. Yeah, like, I mean, obviously, I think the word pivot was like the word for 2020. But my coaching was like, okay, we're pausing. We have to prioritize. We have to prune. And then we can pivot. And so I think people are being forced into that pause, prioritize and prune element of looking at life because when you're stuck in the same four walls for days on end, like you go through that whole phase of like, I hate everything I own. I hate our house. Like you're like, I don't want any of this stuff, like get rid of it. So just that alone. And those are things that's not even the, the bigger picture stuff, um, But I I think it's really interesting. You know, one of the things that I've always really admired about you is that from the outside looking at your path, it seems like you've been really intentional about what you've curated, like who's in your life, what you're working on, you know, what's on your bookshelf. Like you've made, I think you're good at making vignettes, right? Of like your life and, and making them intentionally. Do you feel like you're curating your path and, or is that just a happy accident? I'm definitely curating my path. Yeah. I definitely am. I mean, I, 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 um, I don't, I don't, I mean, I think events in my life have been happy accidents. And, but, you know, my, my dad used to say that, you know, you know, fortune is the, is the perfect intersection of luck and mm-hmm. hard work. Um, and, um, I've definitely put in a lot of, even in sport and in work, I've put in a lot. I mean, you know, those days at Puma, those this is, there's some graft in that in that place. And those places, those days at at Audi, there's some graft. But the reason why you get to graft at Audi and Puma and Nike is because they know you'll graft. Mm-hmm. That, that's 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 why you get there. It's not yeah. it, it's a, it, it's kind of chicken and egg. Who became first? Whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've been lucky in my career, but I don't think it's been. I've just kind of stumbled into things. It's because, you know, I I worked really hard for Paul at that running shoe store. And mm-hmm. because I worked really hard for him, he allowed for me to go do things with him, which allowed yep. for me to meet a guy at Nike, which allowed for me to, mm-hmm. you know, get that career started at Nike. Um, and the whole know, and I, thing starts to open up. And the whole whole thing starts to, to go and the whole thing starts to, to move. I think the curation part of it for me has always been, um, I haven't, as I said, I don't think I've ever sat down and kind of kicked around what my values are mm-hmm. uh, until recently. <clears throat> but I know what, I know what the things are that, that, that push my buttons. You know, I know the things <laughs> that flip my switch. Yeah. I, I know the things that I love. And when I love something, I 
I mean, I love it. I mean, you know, simple things, Mickey Mouse. I mean, I love Mickey Mouse. He, mm-hmm. I want, wanted to work for him, so I went to work for him. When I graduated high school, he mysteriously walked me across the stage. I've got Mickey Mouse tattoos. Like, I, when I love something, mm-hmm. or stickers. I'm into it. Yeah, yeah. stickers. Yeah, more stickers. <laughs> um, you know, swimming, sport, you know, all those kinds of things. So I've curated those things because those are central mm-hmm. to who I am. And then also just... You know, the quest for my dad was an educator, um, you know, and so that quest for knowledge has always been part of it. So I've curated that kind of mm-hmm. consistent quest for learning things um, and even my career working at Adidas until recently. My career has always been having a job that got me to go to Vietnam or to Taiwan they don't sound like sexy, fun places, but the experiences and the <laughs> they haven't gone with have... us, Noah. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The experiences. I mean, those were some of the coolest things ever. And mm-hmm. and you know, my my friends that are in entertainment, um, you know, I, I talk to them about you know, you stood on stage, uh, you know, doing the Spice Girls tour, and there's fifty thousand people in front of you, and that experience that you have. Mm-hmm. And not that it's the same, but for me, some of the experiences where they had were, were yeah. kind of like my mm-hmm. Spice Girls, you know, moment being on stage as Spice Girls, like doing those kinds of things, standing in mm-hmm. front of all those people giving those presentations for the Olympics or being at the know, Olympics, being at the Olympics or things like that. So how about being think, at the Olympics with athletes winning with shit you made? Hey, I mean, I, uh, I. Again, going through some things I'm going through right now, I've been writing down like key like moments in my life and things that are super like pivotal moments. But like being in Beijing Stadium in 2008, uh, six rows up from the track uh, on one side, I've got Tommy Smith, 1968, uh, Mexico gold medal winner, famous for the black glove. On the other side, I've got Dick Fosbury, you know, inventor of the Fosbury flop, first man to go over backwards in the high jump. And on the track is Usain Bolt wearing the gold shoe that Dave Dumbrow, um, just, um, Justin Howe, and I worked on for, for, for months and months and months. Mm-hmm. And then having the PR lady on the other side and me calling her on the phone going, I've got Tommy Smith sat beside me. <laughs> And he just and he won the hundred meters forty years ago to the day mm-hmm. to the guy that we've got. Get him over here now. Let's get that picture. Let's get that picture. And mm-hmm. I've got that picture on my desk. You know those. I think there's luck involved in that. There's hard work in that. But you, I'm again, you're curating things. Yeah. To get to that point, to 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 kind of drive those moments where it's like. The moment yeah, that you were lu- meant to be there for. Yeah, I'm, I'm lucky mm-hmm. that I'm enjoying it. But don't get me wrong. I mean, we all, I mean, all of us, I can go through people at Nike, Puma, Audi, Puma, Audi, uh, all those companies. You know, those, those those people work, they graft, they work their asses off. You don't get those yeah. jobs if you're not going to bust your butt. No. But yeah, I, I, yeah. Would, I would say curation is, um, curation is definitely a, uh, yeah. But I think curation is thinking about things. I don't think it's just, mm-hmm. you know, I think curation is 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 there is some um, cerebral process that goes into that to get, you know, mm-hmm. to make things that way. I think it's um, maybe it's more 
maybe I'm more obvious with it than others, but I do think it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely a part of me, I would say. Well, and I think it's a little bit of like PLMing your own life. You know, like there's, you get put into this track of like, okay, research, what's happening? What's the problem? How do we solve it? What are other people doing? Um, Like, okay, what could be cool for us to do? How do we do it differently? And then you put together the plan and you execute on it. And then you like keep doing that process over and over again. You know, like just the, I taught people how to make a line plan a few months ago as in, as we did a whole month on product creation stuff, you would have thought I gave people the Bible <laughs> because people who haven't been trained in product creation and are running businesses, like they're like, oh my God, like if I track my margins, I can do this, this, this. And I'm like, yes, how are you not doing this already? And there's so many people who don't have that like PLM built-in system, which I never realized would be so powerful to how I live life. But it, it, really has like it's it sounds so crazy but it is that process of the discovery and research and implementation and how's here's the plan let's evaluate okay what's next you know we did that uh, for 2000 SKUs four times a year for yeah. ever you know the thing about the PLM thing that I find super interesting I was chatting with somebody about this a few months ago was that we were talking about different things that you learned at different stages of your career or different kind of like what would be the thing that you would take away from, you know, working at Samsung Mm -hmm. or Puma and stuff like that. And, you know, yes, each of those places, at least for me, has a certain culture about it. So I could talk days about culture and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I was trying to relate it back to the actual position, just similar to what you were just saying is, and um, I just did something for another friend of mine um, talking to them about, this idea of like an archaeological dig. Mm-hmm. And and I really think that comes from that kind of that product line management world where you dug. I mean, you yeah. really went in like you, you know, not just from a business structuring standpoint, but also the types of products that you would go for, what the mm-hmm. trends were or what the, you know, when we were doing originals or we were doing shoes, that, you know, the, the, the archival shoes at Puma the backstories of mm-hmm. why we would do a Clyde or why we would do a Stan Smith or why we, and digging mm-hmm. into those kind of stories. And I, and it, ever since, and all the positions I've had since then, uh, people are quite shocked at the fact that I spend so much time doing quote unquote, what my friend called an archeological dig <laughs> where you're just like, going in and you're mm-hmm. just dusting for the littlest detail or for that nugget and you're trying that's to find that's what matters it. that little nugget yeah. changes everything yeah and i mean and i think that was quite interesting for me of like going from that world into other companies or other businesses mm-hmm. or when when people when you talk to them about it it was like you know how did you come to this and and, and i was like well i just you know i i yeah. dug for it you know i well, i Mm-hmm. I went for it. I I, I, do, I got in and I yeah. I found this and this is interesting and and this led me to this and this led me to this and yeah. Now let we've me got roll out things. my hunt a killer yeah. map I just made <laughs> for this one product. <laughs> we've got ten different things to mm-hmm. look at. Let's pick two or mm-hmm. one or three, and let's you know, magnify, intensify, not magnify, intensify that. And I mm-hmm. think that was. That was that kind of like archaeological dig thing. I think for me, when I was doing product line management, was like mm-hmm. one of the major 
things that I pull from. I speaking to I'm speaking to somebody the other day that was say talking about my CV about this kind of its creative director at Samsung to this to that to this to that to this to that. And that's what I was saying is, you know, the funny thing is, is I've taken, yep. yes, everyone latches on to, oh, my God, you worked at Nike or, oh, my God, you worked at, at Puma or Adidas, right? which is great because they're amazing brands. But it's not so much the brand. It's the things that you learn at those places yes. that, that are ridiculous. They're just like, you know, and you bring that to a, you take that to another company and people are like, wow, you know, where did you? I'm like. So this is normal over there. This, this is, is a nothing. Monday before 9 a.m. What? What? Yeah, what? This, is, this is nothing, man. That's yeah. it. That was my biggest. Um, I felt like going up when I left Puma, I was shocked at how unfunctional and unstructured every other business was. I'm like, okay, they're making hundreds of millions of dollars and they're not doing any of the basics that I wouldn't have been allowed to pitch something for if I didn't have. And so I think that's why I ended up getting moved into more and more like product operation stuff. Cause they're like, Oh, you know how to make all this stuff happen. Like teach us. And I'd be like, I don't want to <laughs> teach you. I'd rather just do it. But it's also what opened up like a lot of my um, consulting work I'm doing now because so many people who have a business have never had any corporate like experience. They've never had an MBA. They've never done entrepreneurship school and they've never worked at a place that changes the market and is a true leader or innovator in their space in any capacity. And I think all those brands you mentioned, they're leading not just in the products they're creating, but also in the marketing and the sales approach and the boring stuff behind the scenes and also how they develop people. So, um, I, I was shocked that that more of the world wasn't operating in those systems when I left. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think it's um, because there's such a proliferation of, of companies and brands coming up mm-hmm. um, and the people that are creating those brands have a certain, a certain amount of expertise or a certain amount of pa- passion mm-hmm. in that space that there is, you know, a, working on a couple of things on my own right now where there's like talking to a guy that working with some stuff on, I was saying to him, you know, the first year and two years, I'm not worried about it's mm-hmm. year three, four and five that I'm worried about because, mm-hmm. you know, getting it going and getting it up and starting to do this and starting to get, you know, that kind of stuff is we can do that and we can make this happen. It's, what do we do once we get it up and how do we sustain it? Because yep. getting it up and getting it going <clears throat> is, you know, there's multiple examples from my previous lives as well of seeing something that goes like this and then goes like that quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I think that the skill set of maintaining those things um, is what you get from some of those companies that, that you know, it, it's how do you, how do you, your your second album is harder than your first album, you know. Uh, that that yeah. to me is the main thing. Like the sophomore album is a bitch, so we got to yes. invest some time in this and figure that thing out because that's where it's going to take us to the next level. That's why you really got to know your why. <laughs> if you don't remember why you're doing it, you are already screwed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so as we're wrapping up today, I would love to know, like, when you think about being powerful. 
what is what does the word powerful mean to you? Like, how do you see yourself as powerful, and and does it matter? Yeah, I mean, I think power for me, um, you know, it, again, it kind of goes back to this conversation of of um, being empowered by your values. Like, what mm-hmm. are the things that are important to you that are core to you, um, and imparting those upon family, friends, the earth, the world, and stuff like that. I think that's where power comes from and what what it means to be powerful is understanding, you know, where um, your values are, what you want to do, and how you can take those into the world. And, um, you know, uh, listen a lot to my friend Matthew McConaughey about selfish, self selfish selfless and selfish mm-hmm. um you know sometimes by being selfish about figuring out what your values are it allows for you to be selfless mm-hmm. and that really resonates to me and i think that's quite powerful and I, I think as i said before i wish i would have spent more time thinking about that a long time ago because <clears throat> i think i would have you know a different set of perspective and i think that's to me is what i'm um what I think is powerful in mm-hmm. my life right now and who I am right now and, and hopefully building on that kind of, uh, you know, building on your values and making them stronger and, and more meaningful. Because I think once you do that, then it allows for me to potentially um, create that space around me that's better for not just myself, but for my partner and my friends and my family and Mm-hmm. potentially some stranger I don't know yet. Yeah. So yeah, that's 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 kind of where my mind is on being powerful. That makes me really excited because what I hear is it's like not Noah 2.0, it's like Noah squared because we just get more Noah in more places and more people knowing <laughs> about you, which I'm like, yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, I am... I, um... I, I, I think this... Uh, Eva, I think, again, kind of going back to this notion of like, um, how people are taking these moments and these opportunities that are being presented to us. And um, it's a horrible situation that we're in, don't get me wrong. And I yep. really want it to not be this way. But also, it's an opportunity for us to do something. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity for us to look at so many different things that need to be looked at. And it is not just political or financial. Yeah. And all these other kind of things, because I think those are the bigger sense of things. It's more like the individual and the people that are around you. And if 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 everybody were just to take that kind of time to think about this, I think something great can become, you know, this idea of the fourth turning, you know, things changing mm-hmm. and coming something new. Uh, it, it's it's It feels like it's in front of us and we're all holding on to it. I just hope we don't fucking drop it, you know, like just... Just hold on to it, look mm-hmm. at it for a little while, caress a little bit, you know, smell it, taste it, spend some time with it, and then do something with it. And I just don't want people just to try and move on too quickly because something's telling us to pause, something's mm-hmm. telling us to slow down. I believe it's Mother Nature because you can't beat that woman. She's amazing. Nope. So just pause and slow down and do something with it. And I think that uh, this kind of evolution, you know, moving forward, whatever you want to call it, is where we are all right now, not just in work, but in mm-hmm. life and in mm-hmm. love and in everything else. So 
Yeah, I'm hoping to. I'm hoping it works. I'm hoping well, we do something with it. Well, when you're in doubt, just give me a call because I'm on that team with you. <laughs> As always. As, As always. always. You've always. You've always been on that team, man. Uh-huh. I know. I can't. I love the fact that I can't even like think about you and not think of like being in downtown or being in the karaoke bar or like being doing something ridiculous on a trip downtown. in Asia. Like, I really don't downtown, know why. Man. Downtown, man. Whoa. Is that place still open? I think so. It was It was last time I was in Nuremberg. Um, I'm not sure if it's the, the hip spot that we made it when we were all there. Um, Man, that that place was that place was a joint. I'm telling you, the velvet was it carpeted walls? And oh the, yeah, cheetah print, cheetah uh, print velvet cheetah walls. Print. If yeah. I, you know, when I think about the type of bar that I would want at my house, it's kind of that bar, like hundred percent. Yep, hundred percent. Like if I was yep. going to make some kind of silly, yeah, shed bar or basement mm-hmm. bar or something like that, it would be. That I mean, it would yes. be carpeted walls. It would be lots of funky mirrors, mm-hmm. uh, or that bar that had the funky mirror bar. I mean, it was the little baby I, stage, I, the poles. Yeah, yeah. I probably changed the bathroom, but other yes. than that, I'd go. I'd go yes. with the. Uh, I'd go with the uh, that look and feel. Definitely would be my 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 home bar if I made one. If I had that kind of money and that kind of space. I would probably also have it be a little less humid. It was always really humid in there. I will never understand why. <laughs> until until it was like negative five outside and somebody would open that door and mm-hmm. it would just freeze everybody out because you'd be sweating so much and you'd be like, okay, yes. somebody's opened the door. Yeah. Yeah, that was, there was some, uh, that's a crazy place, man. It's, it's definitely a crazy place. It was, it was a... A huge part of my adventure, and I'm just excited that there's so many people from that time that are still still on the team. Still, you know, we're not getting to as many adventures together, but I do feel like we're in this like parallel corkscrews of like what's happening next. So, for everyone who now loves you as much as I do, how can they follow you, support you? Where can they go to be on Team Noah? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm a uh... LinkedIn is, you know, Noah Bernard and on LinkedIn is an easy one. Uh, my Instagram is Noah underscore versus underscore no. Uh, <laughs> Noah versus no is uh, uh, kind of a good indication of me trying to figure out how I push myself to uh, question things and things like that. Um, yeah. And yeah, those are probably the two best places to find me. I'm, I'm on Instagram a lot. Uh, and then if you follow me on Instagram, I, it'll lead you to some other things I'm doing. I've got a, uh, a running team thing that I'm working on and a few other things that we'll hopefully we'll get to see in the next few months. Awesome. Well, yeah. thank you so much for being a guest to coming on the podcast. Um, the one thing I have to ask you, um, we ask everyone, is where you put yourself on the powerful lady scale. Zero being average everyday human and 10 being the most powerful lady or gentleman possible. So where would you score yourself today? And where do you think you would score yourself on average? Uh, so to, on average, I'm going to say I'm, I'm about a seven. Uh, today, I'm probably about a six because I haven't gotten to swim in yet. and Or I haven't gotten to swim in today because the pools are closed. But uh, give me about three or four months and I'll definitely be nine or ten. I like definitely it. Definitely nine or ten. Yeah, I'm going, I'm going for ten. I'm always aiming for ten. Well, Noah, thank you so much. This means the world to me, and I can't wait to see you in real life sometime soon. 
Thanks, Kara. I appreciate you having me on. This has been uh, it's been a joy, to be honest. I really, really love this. It's been awesome. Thank you for listening to today's episode. All the links to connect with Noah are in our show notes at thepowerfulladies.com forward slash podcast. There, you can also leave comments and ask questions about this episode. Want more Powerful Ladies? Come join us on Instagram at Powerful Ladies, where you can also find some free downloads to start being powerful today. Subscribe to this podcast and help us connect with more listeners by leaving us a five-star rating and a review. If you're looking to connect directly with me, visit caraduffy.com. I'd like to thank our producer, composer, and audio engineer, Jordan Duffy. Without her, this wouldn't be possible. You can follow her on Instagram at Jordan K. Duffy. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, I hope you're taking on being powerful in your life. Go be awesome and up to something you love.